Well, hello, New Life Manitou. Hello, I'm glad to see all of you. Um, happy Thanksgiving week. Again, I'll be the second person to wish you a happy Thanksgiving week. Um, my name's Brett. If I don't know you, uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff uh, here at New Life. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, we have been um, in the small but subversive book of Ruth. And so um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Joe, who um, is not here uh, this week, he'll be, he and his family are um, going and visiting family over the next couple of weeks. Um, Pastor Joe has walked us through uh, the first couple of chapters. And this week and next week, uh, I'll be walking us through the last two chapters of Ruth. And so today we're going to be in the third chapter. So you can go ahead and turn there. If you've got like the, the actual paper Bibles, you can turn there. If you or load it up on your phones, whatever you want to, um, however you get to the book of Ruth, you can get there. Uh, today, I want to give you permission. Is what I want to do. I want to give you permission to stop trying to do two impossible things. Is what I want to try. Most of us are breaking our backs every like hour, every hour of the day, week after week. We're trying. We're breaking our backs trying to do two things, but they're actually impossible. They're two impossible things, and they're two impossible things that you don't need to do. And so I want to uh, get us permission to not do them. And so um, the text is going to get us there. And then we'll um, talk about the text by talking about flannel graphs and clean rooms and the metaverse. And then that should, if that's not a tease, um, and then that should get us there. Um, and that should bring us to the table this morning. So hopefully you're there, Ruth, uh, chapter three, uh, starting in verse one, and it'll be up here on the screens as well. It's the NRSV is what I'm going to be reading from today. And it's actually slightly modified anywhere that it says the, the name of um, Lord with all capital letters. That's the name Yahweh. So we've uh, modified that. And then there's a bold phrase in here as well that um, I've modified to reflect the, the original language as well. So uh, Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter... I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well for you. Now, here is our kinsman Boaz with, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down... <laughs> When he lies down, observe, the, it's literally no, know the place, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Verse five, she said to her, Ruth said to her, all that you tell me to do, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, he was, um, he was in a uh, contented mood, which you would be after like a large feast with lots of, uh, it's, it's the, the first part of the harvest. This is the time when you're um, gathering in. Food is scarce a lot of the time. There's actually been a famine in the land, we're told earlier 
in the book. So finally got food, we're eating, we're drinking, we're celebrating. He's in a contented mood and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came stealthily, secretly, and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and there lying at his feet was a woman. He said, who are you? That seems like a reasonable question in the middle of the night. And she, she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant for you are next of kin. Your um, kinsman redeemer is what a lot of your translations might say. He said, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. The last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now... Though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night and in the morning, he, if he will act as, um, as next of kin for you, good. Let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as Yahweh lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning." Um, so she lay down at his feet until morning and got up before one person could recognize another. So still, well, it's pretty dark. For he said, maybe to himself, maybe to her, um, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. <laughs> Got to keep this secret. Um, then he said, bring the cloak you're wearing and hold it out. And so she, she like held it out. You know, you pick up your cloak and hold it out. And then she, uh, he measured six measures of barley and put it on her, her back. So he got the cloak and then put it on her back and uh, he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law who said, who are you, my daughter? Like assuming like, are you his husband? Who are you? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, he gave me these six measures of barley for he said, do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, it's an enigmatic text. We, we look at it, we say, why, why has this ancient text been handed down through the centuries by the people of God? And... Um, why are we reading it and why um, and how does it speak? And so we pause with expectation and we say, come Holy Spirit, come and speak this morning. We don't need clever words. We need, um, we need the power of your spirit that raises the dead for we have come and we are dead and we need to be raised. And so uh, do it right now uh, through, through the preacher through the here, through this sacred moment, uh, speak, Lord, for your children are listening. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 
Okay, I want to begin. I know we're like seven minutes in, but I, uh, it's a long text, chapter of the Bible. Good for you, gold star. Like you've read the Bible for today. Well done. Um, I want to begin this morning with a confession. Uh, Ruth is one of the few books of the Bible that as an adult, as a pastor, um, I didn't really like. Oh, can our pastor say that? I don't know. Like, I can't be a pastor if I'm not honest with you. And so like, I'm a pastor's kid, actually, um, as well. I grew up in church, and my impression of the book of Ruth was that it was um, like the Hallmark movie of the Bible. Am I, I'm not wrong about this, am I? Like, that we could go, like, just that is, any, do we have any Hallmark fans here? And that, like, you can, be pr- you can be proud about it. Yeah, I mean, like, I must confess that I, I do not love Hallmark. Mark movies. It's one of my many downfalls in life. Um, and I, I, it seems like I don't enjoy them for precisely the same reasons that other people do. Like, they love them. It is the same story rinsed and repeated. It's like an endless, somebody has just airbrushed all of the wrinkles out of life. They are predictable. They are like sentimental and sappy. There's not a lot of conflict in it, and all the conflict, any of the loose ends that might have been there, they all get neatly tied up by the end of the story. So, right? I'm not wrong about this. So I I see the people who raise their hands are all grinning ear from ear. (laughs) I love this. And so it's like, I do understand the appeal. I do understand their comfort food. They're like, they're like the, they're like mac and cheese turned into a movie or something. Like it, it tastes good. You know exactly what you're going to get. There's not a whole lot of room for like changing up the formula or really creativity, you know, it's like, and we don't want it. I just want mac and cheese, you know, you swap out the actors, you know, but the formula doesn't need changing because if you change the Hallmark movie too much, then it's not a Hallmark movie anymore. So as an adult, I began to think that Ruth seems to tick all of the boxes of a Hallmark movie. It tells like the fish out of water story of a recently widowed woman who she's returning to a small town. Am I right? Small town uh, where her, her husband had grown up and where she falls in love with a wealthy landowner who probably owns the hardware store as well. Who <laughs> happens happens to be her husband's distant cousin and they all, by the end, they all live happily ever after. Oh, and by the way, there's a twist at the end. Her great-great-grandson is King David. So surprise, someone's actually royalty. Like, that's a Hallmark movie thing too. Um, We're not breaking the formula there. Uh, Different different people enjoy different stories. And I just assumed that Ruth was in the Bible for those of you who love Hallmark movies. Um, But it's not, actually. It's um, it, there's a lot going on in this small and subversive uh, book. Uh, and w- as we're about to find out, there's something funny going on here in chapter three. If you remember last week, Joe, uh, Dr. Joe was talking about uh, Ruth has gone out to glean in the fields to, to get food from the, the, the bits that are left over. Um, and I can just imagine, at like the Hallmark movie side of me, can just imagine panning over the workers from Ruth and then stopping on Boaz. He's just stepped out of the hardware store. He's probably wearing flannel, you know, like he's got the chiseled jaw. He's smart and he's kind and he's rich and everybody likes him. And he leans over and he says, who, hey, Nick, because that's apparently the most popular. I looked this up. This is one of the most popular names in the Hallmark movie. Anyway, 
hey, Nick, you know, who is that? This is chapter two. And uh, the answer that Nick gives, of course, is her. Well, verse uh, two, or verse six of chapter two says, uh, she's the Moabite. She's the Moabite who came back with Naomi. And that's actually what the narrator of the story has kept calling her throughout. We don't just hear, like, and we don't hear it. We think of Ruth as just like this nice, pretty story, but Moabite is like a pejorative term. It's a, it, it carries negative qualities to it. It's, it would be like, like hey, Nick, who's, who is that over there? Oh, her? She's the Nazi who came back with Naomi. <laughs> so, it doesn't matter what kind of positive things the National Socialist German Workers' Party was doing at one point. The, like, it may have been doing it. The very name now, Nazi, has become like an insult. It's negative. The, the, um, the word Moabite has got such baggage attached to it that there's almost no way of saying it nicely in, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. By the time you actually get uh, to Ruth, you've, you've, I've assumed, read through the first five books, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah. Um, and at this point, the Moabites, particularly Moabite women, Moabite women are supreme bad guys. Uh, villains par excellence. Numbers chapter 25 actually says, while Israel was uh, staying at, be careful, staying at Shittim, the, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. The, um, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and Yahweh's anger burned against them. It's a big deal when we start realizing that a lot of the native people in this land, the Canaanites, the Moabites, they were um, it's infant sacrifice. So you could understand why God's anger is burning against. And then by the time you get to the last book of the book of um, um, the books of Moses, you've got Moses saying in Deuteronomy twenty-three verse three, "No Ammonite or Moabite." shall be admitted to the assembly of Yahweh ever. <laughs> Even to the 10th generation, none of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of Yahweh. Pretty sweeping statement. No Moabites shall be admitted to Yahweh's people ever. None of their descendants, they're Moabites for crying out loud. I mean, imagine the Hallmark movie where it's not just Nick saying, calling her this, it's even the narrator calling her this. You got the voiceover in the movie and verse 22 of chapter one, Ruth the Nazi. <laughs> chapter two, verse two, Ruth the Nazi. <laughs> Verse 21 of chapter two, Ruth, the Nazi. Eventually, Ruth would just like break the fourth wall, look at the camera and be like, would you stop calling me a Nazi? <laughs> you know? Come on. Stop. One of the reasons we struggle to recognize these things happening in the story, there's a lot of reasons, but um, one of them is we're not expecting them. 
We're not expecting these sorts of things when we're coming to the Bible. Um, this is actually one of the ways that I understood the Bible when I grew up, was growing up. Uh, <laughs> is this familiar to anybody else? Some, some people, if you don't know what this is, um, this is a flannel graph. Uh, it is, there's a dear saint of a woman, I'm sure. I'm not trying to denigrate at all, but there's this dear saint of a woman. I don't know what kind of story she's telling. That man has like nimulocumulus briefs on. Is what I'm trying to say. He's got cloud underwear on. I don't know what's going on here. Um, I don't know that Bible story. Um, you maybe he's dressed in a cloud. Maybe there's probably prophetic imagery or apocalyptic energy. Anyway, she is telling a story with a cloth background and cloth figures being put up, and you could tell a story so that children can can see it. It's used a lot of times for children, and many times um, we get taught some sort of version of a Bible story that looks like this, or or cartoons. Veggie Tales has done a a giant job of doing this, of making in our mind that stories are being told with a nice moral to it. The Bible is not doing anything unexpected. Ruth was hardworking and loyal, and you should be too, is kind of the way the story gets told. I'm not making any of this up, right? This is the way that like we receive the Bible. And I'm afraid a lot of times we have heard this so often that what we think is we think that the Bible is telling pleasant stories primarily aimed at children, is what we think the Bible is. And so one of two things ends up happening as we grow up. Either we grow up and we think, man, there are better stories out there. <laughs> this story is a little lame. And these morals are a little lame. Like, there's got to be a better basis for ethics and morality than this. And so we walk away from the Bible. A lot of people that I know uh, who sat in Sunday school with me watching flannel graph tellings, that, like a lot of people that I know um, did exactly that, walked away. Um, or second thing that could happen is we grow up and we take all of it to heart. We take, and we think, oh man, I do have to be as hardworking and as loyal as Ruth. And the goal is to be little, good little boys and girls. And so I've got to be as hardworking and as loyal as Ruth. And I've also got to be as strong as Samson, who's a creep, by the way, if you've ever read the story. As strong as Samson, as courageous as David facing his giants, daring as a Daniel. We got VBS curriculum, like dare to be a Daniel, whatever. And then we grow up and we get hit with life, like real life, like not Hallmark movie stuff, but like real complicated, like I don't know how to do the right thing. I don't even know what the right thing is to do kind of life. And suddenly we're like, man, what do I do with all this stuff that I'm supposed to be X, Y, all these things. And so we end up having to pretend like I am this good little girl or this good little boy, or we feel like a profound sense of shame that we're not, right? And does this sound familiar at all? And that we have, a lot of us have to pretend like we've got it all together. There's a lot that we could say about chapter three of Ruth, um, but right now, uh, I think what we need to do is we need to set the flannel graph to the side for just a moment. 
Um, Naomi and Ruth in this story are women in a patriarchal society in the ancient Near East, and they have returned to um, a town that does not recognize them. Many of them don't, they don't, none of them know Ruth, and some of the women recognize uh, Naomi, but <laughs> they've been gone for 10 years. Any picture, like for example, any picture that we have of them like hanging out in a house, yeah, uh, all of my imagery in my mind is like Ruth and Naomi talking in a house. But like, we don't even know, that's not in the text. We don't even know if they're homeless in this story, in the actual story that we're told. Um, we need to set the flannel graph aside. And Naomi realizes, verse one, she says, Boaz is related to, a, her, to her deceased husband, and Levitical law at the time and social custom dictated that a close relative, got a close relative, um, a male close relative could take care of the deceased's family, um, like marry and provide them with kids. Um, and so Naomi instructs Ruth this way is what he does. Um, I've got four verbs right here and one noun. Um, she instructs Ruth to know or observe where he is and then go over and uncover and lay down next to him. Flannel graphs aside for just a moment, Naomi uses four verbs, four action words right here to tell Ruth what to do and all four of them have sexual overtones to them. I have put the, I've put, in the Bible, have sexual overtones. I put the, you can snap a picture of this with your camera if you want to do the homework later and just look up the, they, the, all four of these verbs can be euphemistically used to talk about intimate relations. And then the word feet, ugh, the word feet is literally a word that means leg area is what it means. It just means, so it can be a euphemism in those places, um, a roundabout way to talk about male intimate areas. <laughs> What are we talking about? So snap a picture if you want to do the homework later. Um, it's not exactly clear what Naomi is suggesting with her words, and it sounds almost like part of an Austin Powers script. <laughs> you know that all those words can be like, just one word might be, but all four of them? <laughs> it's like five double entendres in one sentence. Oh my gosh. And so we're never, I'm not trying to, we're never explicitly told um, that anything happens. Um, but even Boaz, who has a little bit of a buzz going on at this point, like he has the clarity of thought to recognize in verses 14 and 15, uh, we got to keep this a secret. <laughs> Like, no one can know a woman came to the threshold. He doesn't want word of this breaking out anywhere because it could cause a scandal. It could cause a scandal. Verse eight, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he says, holy moly, who uncovered my feet slash leg area? <laughs> oh no, I didn't think I drank that much. What the? There's a Nazi laying next to me. Oh my God. <laughs> Seriously though, this is like, this is like a golden calf level of scandal 
Moabite women seducing Israelite men. That's, this is an incendiary little book, Ruth, right here. Moabite women seduce the men of Israel. Boaz's reputation is about to go down the tubes, and the town gossip is going to have a field day with this. Have you heard the dirt that I've got on Boaz? You know who he was with last night. Fraulein Ruth, she was out there. <laughs> I don't know if I... Going to keep going. <laughs> that brings us to the first impossible thing that you don't have to do. You don't need a story devoid of dirt in your life. I grew up with flannel graphs, and then I moved into youth group, and a funny thing began to happen. I began to hear a whole lot about the dirt of the world, you know, the brokenness of the world, like what the church appropriately calls sin, and how it could derail my life and mess up my life. And any hint of, of a scandal or of sin needs to be avoided or, or hidden or denied, you know, especially when we get together as a group because we're good Christians. We're good boys and girls. And um, I think we've ended up doing that with this story too. The funny, th there is something funny going on here at the threshing floor, um, but we're just gonna breeze by it because there's no way that God could be at work in the dirt. Let's see if we can just airbrush this <laughs> right out of the story. Like, all right, look, airbrush all the rain. But see, the thing is, when we airbrush the Bible story, we eventually have to airbrush our stories is what happens. This is why I'm making a point of reading the Bible and trying to lean into something's funny going on here. The Bible, have you read it? It is chock full of scandal. It is absolutely brimming with sub-ideal situations. And the people of God just mess. Like, the dirt is everywhere on everyone. And I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, God is still at work. God is still loving. God is still steering and guiding and faithful. This is the gospel, by the way, that God is still with us even when we are covered in filth, not just a little bit, even when we're covered in dirt, even when we're covered in shame and sin, we're in the land of death and God loves us so much that God dies on a cross and has, his, and has people carry his filthy corpse into a tomb. If you are in the land of death, in the land of death is where I too will go. That is the gospel. And that brings us to clean rooms. Not, not clean rooms like what I'm wanting my girls to do. They're five and six, but five and four. Um, clean rooms. You guys know what a clean room is, right? It's an environment where everything has been done to make sure that there are no contaminants, no dirt, no microbes, no bacteria, no nothing. And thank God for clean rooms because we want to have surgery in a clean room. I tell you what, we want, you, if you have surgery, you want it to be done in this environment, but somewhere along the way, for us, brothers and sisters, somewhere along the way, a genuine and a good desire for holiness and for wholeness has become distorted into the idea that our entire 
existence, our entire lives have to be a clean room before God can bless us or before God can love us or before God can be present with us or working through our lives or something. And you've got to make sure that not even a particle, not even a particle of sin is in your life. And anyone who has tried to do this, like me, anyone who has tried to do this for even a few days quickly becomes aware that it is impossible. It's impossible. You either realize how much you're not doing it and you begin to despair, or probably worse, you actually start thinking that you are doing it. (laughs) Oh, God, help the people you're in your circles because you wind up totally infected with the sickness of pride and self-righteousness. But we tend to think of what... If I say clean room and ask for the opposite of it, what do you get? Like, this is not a rhetorical question. I know I'm up distant from you, but what do you guys think of when you think of like opposite of a clean room? What? Wait, wait, wait. Cesspool. I got cesspool over here. Anyone else? All right? Outhouse. Yes. I, I thought toxic waste dump is what I thought. Like, but like something like a toxic, but this actually right here, This is just as much the opposite of a clean room, right? We tend to think of a, if it's not a clean room, then it must be Chernobyl. (laughs) There's no life at Chernobyl. (laughs) But there's no life in a clean room either. A clean room is not a healthy ecosystem. This is the first impossible thing that you don't need to do. You don't need a story devoid of dirt. You need a story growing life. If if 2020 taught us anything, it is that a clean room is a good place to have a surgery, but it's an impossible place to live. (laughs) You can't do it. If... If we're trying to live without, if the the primary thing in our mind guiding us is never, ever, ever bumping into a particle of sin and we're paralyzed, but we're afraid that we may get some dirt on us and they may misunderstand. All four of those verbs have different like connotation. Do you know what feet area means? Like if we're obsessed with this sort of thing, I think we may have mistaken what God wants for our lives. Our father is in the business of washing his children clean when we need it. But, but hear me, I, I'm not saying that like, oh no, sin is no big deal. Without a question, yes, it is. There are all kinds of weeds that need pulling, but why do they need pulling? They need pulling because they're destroying a tree. They're destroying life. There's all kinds of dirt that needs removing because it's destroying the carpet. There's all kinds of mold that needs just removing because it's making you sick. But if you obsess over this, it's easy to lose our way in this. God is not interested in you following some sort of celestial set of rules out there in the ether. God is interested in you being fully alive. That's the whole point. The absence of dirt is not the same thing as the presence of life. It's not. It's possible to be keeping every religious rule, to not be sinning and know nothing of love. A challenge to those of us who are scrupulous about our sin um, might be to recognize that 
when our instinct is to ask God for forgiveness, that is a good thing to do. But recognize that this is actually what we are actually doing. The flip side of the coin, please forgive me. The flip side of that is please fill me with love. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. In some way, I have drifted away from love. I have been misusing some part of your creation. I have been abusing that person over there. I have not been fully present in my life. Forgive me, yes, but fill me up with love. That is really the, that is the end of the sentence of, of it. Love is the thing that is driving Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, and love has to drive us too. And that brings us to the second impossible thing that you don't have to do. And you don't need a life that always feels spiritual. And that brings us to the metaverse, actually. Um, Facebook Incorporated actually just uh, recently changed their business name to Meta Platforms Incorporated, if you didn't know. <laughs> if you haven't heard, we're all about to be living in the next few decades in an augmented reality and virtual worlds in the next you know, little bit. They're aiming to create a virtual world in which people can talk and learn and work together. It's a, it's a actually a noble thing of like some, it like doesn't matter where in the world you live, you have the same opportunity to live and work and be uh, uh, in um, it, uh, with other people. Uh, anyway, a few days ago, I saw, um, I saw this and this made me laugh. It's one of those satirical headlines. It says, God develops ultra-realistic metaverse where people can talk, learn, and work with other people. God calls it the universe. <laughs> I love that. It's like the thing you've been waiting for, the thing you've been waiting for, it's already here. As Dr. Joe has uh, emphasized, none of this story in Ruth feels particularly spiritual. God is only said to do one thing in this story, and it actually comes next, uh, next chapter when Ruth gives, or God gives Ruth conception. He gives her a pregnancy. That is the only thing in this story that God is said to do. And yet, in the hush of night, secretly, you know what kind of story this is? In the middle of this chapter, with his leg slash feet area uncovered, Boaz says in verse 13, as Yahweh lives, I will act as your next of kin for you. None of this moment feels particularly spiritual, does it? It's not like the parting of the sea. It's not plagues on Egyptian oppressors. It's just a wealthy, chiseled man in flannel sheets, maybe. Uh, he's uh, saying to an oppressed woman, someone is going to take care of you. Someone's going to redeem you, me or someone even closer to you. And in this everyday moment where nothing miraculous seems to be going on, Boaz has the wherewithal to name the reality, the fact Yahweh lives. You don't need a spiritual life. 
your real life is already spirit-saturated. I know what people talk, mean when they talk about, oh, how's your spiritual life going? But a lot of times, like, it's just profoundly unhelpful. You don't need to, like, chalk your life full of, like, a bunch of Christian spiritual stuff, like Christian music and Christian movies and Christian lingo. I mean, it's fine if you want to. Like, that's fine. What did you do over the weekend? Well, it was just a sweet time. Me and my brothers, we were fellowshipping together and we listened to some Toby Mac and we watched some Facing the Giants. It was like, like whatever movie happens. That's fine if you really like those things, but can I just tell you, it's okay for you to just hang out with people to just be friends with people, to listen to Bon Jovi and to watch The Mandalorian. Like, that, it's, it's so, like, I'm not trying to, but many of us have started buying into the lie that our lives need to feel spiritual. And so we fill it up with all kinds of spiritual or Christian things. And we, we have to always pretend. We walk around with each other pretending like we're always hearing God's voice. And I'm just living on the mountaintop, brother. But Ruth's story tells us there's nothing. It's okay when nothing seems spiritual. Yahweh lives. Yahweh lives. You don't need a life that always feels spiritual. You already have a life that is spiritual. And the invitation in the book of Ruth and with all of our lives is to, to recognize it. Boaz wakes up next to a Moabite woman and he says, who are you? And something's been going on under the surface this whole time. Ruth comes back to Naomi and she asks the exact same question to her. I've bolded it in our, who are you? Meaning like, are you his wife now or something? And somewhere along the way, this story that doesn't feel spiritual, it has more complications than a Hallmark movie. It has more scandal than a flannel graph. It has more dirt than a clean room. But the spirit is at work in this story. And somewhere along the way, Ruth's identity has actually changed. She's no longer, the, the narrator actually, from this point on, the narrator never calls her Ruth the Moabite anymore. Her identity's changed because the spirit's been at work this entire time and we were not aware of it. And the spirit is at work in your story too.